I'm Jesse. Let's have a devotion. The first in our series, Sacred Conversations. We have gone through Ruth. We have gone verse by verse through Matthew. And now, dovetailing from Matthew in route to Isaiah, we're going to camp out on the implications of the Gospel of Matthew. And this series is going to be a very practical evangelism series. So I want to start by reviewing the engine that makes the church run. This will be, I think, like the sixth time that I've gone over this text in uh, not quite two years with the Redemption Church. That's how important this is, all right? I'm going to keep saying this over and over again until it makes you throw up, and then I'm going to say it some more. <laughs> this is the Great Commission. These are the final words of the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. He is with us always. We've gone through this chunk by chunk in our series, Behold the Harvest. Uh, we've gone through it as well in Devotions in Matthew. Um, and usually we start at the first chunk. So I know that I'm, I am uh, not belaboring, but further savoring the same few verses. And so this time I want to go backwards. With us, always, even to the end of the age. Jesse, how is it that he's with us always when clearly, like opening of the book of Acts, we see Jesus ascend? And this is to indicate the nature of his return. And he hasn't returned. So how is it that he's with us always? Remember in our series in Matthew, we saw numerous times where Jesus would say, look, I'm with you now, but the time's coming when I won't be with you. When the disciples came under fire for not fasting the way that John the Baptist's disciples fasted, or even the Pharisees fasted, in fact, they were eating and drinking. When they came under fire for this and for other things, like not observing ceremonial hand washing, stuff like that, Jesus' response would even be prophetic of his departure, indicating, look, I'm like the groom and these are like my groomsmen. And right now we're feasting together because the time is coming when the groom will be taken away from them and they'll have plenty of time to fast later, pointing out the false dichotomy that they had set up because if he drank with his disciples, he was a drunkard. And if he didn't drink like John the Baptist, he had a demon. Like, so he couldn't win with them anyway. He wasn't doing anything for their approval. And he foreshadowed his departure saying, look, I'm going to be taken away from them. They need this time with me. Let them enjoy this. Let them revel in this. Same thing with the woman who, according to the Gospel of John, was named Mary, may not have been Mary Magdalene, who poured out the perfume on Jesus uh, to prepare him for his burial, pointing out that, look, you're always going to have the poor among you. You could, always, you, you could always minister to the poor, but this, these are your last moments with me. What she's done is good to prepare me for my burial. So he was... He was repeatedly talking about his upcoming crucifixion. We, we saw three very clear instances of which he just overtly stated it to the disciples, and then even more. And we, we know that this was lost on the disciples. Women like Mary seemed to be paying closer attention than they did because she was preparing Jesus for burial. Even the Magi, the wise men, and the Christmas story seemed to get this in a way that the disciples didn't quite get it. 
So he knew that he was departing. He had told them repeatedly that he was departing. So why are the final words of the Gospel of Matthew, I'm always going to be with you? This is where the beauty of the triune nature of God affects us most directly. He is with us because we have the Holy Spirit now. God has always been present on the earth. It was most overt in Eden, and it will be that way again. Sin fractured our relationship with God, however. And so now we cannot see the book of Exodus, see you know, our, one of our opening sermons in Isaiah. We, with our sin, would not survive the presence of the holiness of God directly. And so, how did God's presence manifest on the earth after Eden? We see that He lingered for a time, speaking with Adam, with Eve, with their children even. And then we see the presence of God on the earth. We see the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament in momentary glimpses. In fact, we saw the Holy Spirit at the very beginning of Genesis. The Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. The Holy Spirit has always been here, but He never poured out quite like He did in the book of Acts. The Ark of the Covenant carried with it the direct presence of God for the Israelites. The burning bush manifested before Moses. Before that, be the very direct presence of God on the earth. Jacob would have his name changed to Israel after he wrestled with a manifestation of the direct presence of God on the earth. Jesus' birth was a colossal deal in part because, I mean, look, any, any manifestation of God on the earth is obviously epic and cataclysmic. But this was now, since the Ark of the Covenant, which, you know, sorry Harrison Ford, it's not actually in a big giant crate in a big giant warehouse somewhere. Uh, it's more likely under the streets of Jerusalem somewhere. We don't know where the Ark of the Covenant is. The direct presence of God on the earth was Jesus, was a baby born likely in a cave in Bethlehem, the small town six miles south of Jerusalem. The direct presence of God on the earth was Jesus. Jesus told his disciples to wait for power from on high. And in the same book, wherein we see Jesus ascend, we see his departure, we also see his presence. The tearing of the curtain upon the crucifixion was deliberate on God's part, of course. Tearing from top to bottom, God did it, not mankind. That curtain was to separate what was what, what contained the presence of God from the outside world. And now with that curtain torn by God, we know that the presence of God is the Holy Spirit living within us. The temple served a very practical purpose. Its predecessor was the Israelite encampment. The Israelites would lay out camp in such a way that structured uh, a layout mirroring the layout of the throne room of God as would later be described by Ezekiel and by Isaiah in the book of Revelation. We didn't know that at the time. The Israelites had no clue about that at the time. But what they would do every time they set up camp was they would lay out this encampment that actually formed a cross because the tribe of Judah would be longer, you know, make a longer branch. You know, however it is you lay out the tabernacle, as it was called, it actually, they're actually moving in this cross-like shape across the desert, the Exodus Sands. The temple was given to Solomon with very strict instructions, and at the very center of the center of the center was the Holy of Holies and the presence of God upon the earth. So now with Christ's crucifixion and that curtain torn, no longer are people bound by 
the Old Testament sacrificial system because the ultimate sacrifice has now been made, the atonement for the sins of all who believe in Jesus. Old Testament believers saved by their faith in the Messiah who was to come, their adherence to the law of Moses demonstrated this, and now we are saved by the one whom we remember. So God the Father walked the earth in Eden. His presence manifest in the ark and the spirit visiting in various ways, arguably as well what are called Christophanies throughout the Old Testament, meaning visits of Christ to the earth in the Old Testament. And then Jesus in the Gospels is the presence of God on the earth. This presence of God on the earth actually overlaps into the next book that follows the singular work that is the Gospels. So even though in your table of contents and in your Bible app, you see Mark and Luke and John next, you can very rightly skip from Matthew 28, 18 through 20 into Acts chapter 1 to see the narrative continue as Luke, the physician, the scientist, gives a letter to a man named Theophilus to give a reasoned account of everything that had just happened in Jesus' life. There are red letter words in the opening chapter of Acts, and these describe how God follows through on the final words of the Gospel of Matthew. I am with you always, even to the end of the age, following the departure of Jesus, indicating the nature of his return. So, while he was with them, verse 4 of Acts 1, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise, which he said, you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days. Okay, so he is ascending in this moment, in this conversation. And then the Holy Spirit is coming in a few days. It's about around the time where the Feast of Pentecost would be observed. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? Again, having this myopic view of the scope of the Messiah's ministry, thinking that it was strictly for the political interest of Israel then and there. He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now we have unpacked verse eight numerous times but I want to draw a direct line from the final words of Matthew to some of these opening lines of Acts. This is how you will receive power from the Holy Spirit. And so just as Jesus prophesied would happen in Acts chapter two, the Holy Spirit poured out upon Pentecost in Jerusalem when Jews from all over the world were gathered in one place. Though they spoke different languages and different dialects of Hebrew, they all could understand each other, no matter what language the other guy was saying. That's the actual original manifestation of the gift of tongues, understanding what other people were saying. This was, just as Paul describes, a sign to non-believers, and thousands of people were saved in a single day, just like that. So they received power from the Holy Spirit, it's not always manifested the gift of tongues, but it is present in Acts chapter 2. It is present in another episode with Paul and company, and it is present in Acts chapter 10 because God confirmed to Peter that the Holy Spirit was now upon Gentiles just as he was with Jews. And so Peter, probably the most prejudiced of all the disciples, he even struggled with it later on, see Galatians chapter 2, sees that the Holy Spirit has come upon Gentiles who are we to deny them water to be baptized right now you will receive power. 
I am with you always. Do you believe these words are true? Because if you do, you will be fearless in evangelism. It's not to say that you won't feel afraid, though it's not to say that you won't have an elevated pulse when it comes up, the chance to be able to bring up the gospel, but your being filled with the Holy Spirit of God is elemental to the beginnings of the sacred conversation. I do believe that the Holy Spirit prompts us. We know this already when it comes to conviction for sin. That one's easy. He has given us of His Spirit. Paul talks about the dichotomy wherein we have the sin nature and we have the Holy Spirit living within us. So you know the Holy Spirit talks to you. He's the one who bonks you on the head when you sin because you knew better than to sin. You knew by the law of God, that's God's standard, and you did it anyway, and you feel like, oh, what a wretched man I am, says Paul in Romans chapter 7. You know the Holy Spirit speaks to you. He does it when you sin. So is that the only role of the Holy Spirit for you? Does the Holy Spirit only bop you on the head? <laughs> Don't you know he's also the counselor? That's how Jesus called him. Right? He's, he's not merely the disciplinarian. He's not merely a 1960s principal with a beehive haircut and horn rim glasses and a ruler ready to pop you on the hand every time you mess up. That's not, not even close to the full scope of what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit is how the final words of Jesus and Matthew are experienced by believers today. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You will receive power when my Holy Spirit comes upon you. So know this, when the conversation moves that direction, or when you get what seems like a wild idea to steer the conversation toward the gospel, you have received power from the Holy Spirit. Jesus is with you in that moment. Some conversations just land that way. Sometimes you go fishing and a marlin lands in your boat. But oftentimes you've got to be the one who casts the line. Do you remember the parable of the sower? You've got to cast the seed. So when you cast the seed, how is that done practically? Somebody's got to bring this up and it's not often the non-believer. It is in my experience numerous times, but most of the time, the vast majority of the time, it's the Holy Spirit of God, Jesus, with me at the bistro table, bringing up the gospel, saying something about that, moving things that direction. We've talked in our series, Behold the Harvest, about practical ways you can introduce this. Do you ever think about spiritual things? What do you believe about God? Things like this. When you go to church, where do you go? If you go to church, go to, where do you go? If you were to go to church, where would you go? You know, what do you believe about spiritual things? These are practical questions you can use, but I don't want you to treat it like a script. I want you to grasp the clear line between the final words of Matthew and the opening prophecy of Acts, because in that moment leading up to the sacred conversation, the power of the Holy Spirit is upon you. The Holy Spirit's presence in your life doesn't always manifest itself strictly in terms of convicting you for sin and saying, hey, you're doing something wrong, you're doing something wrong, you're doing something wrong. If you're a child of God, He is your shepherd and you hear His voice and you know it. Yes, that voice inviting you to invite your friend 
into a sacred conversation, that's the Holy Spirit. All right, a demon would not prompt you. Evil would not invite you to bring up the gospel. He's with us always. You will receive power, power that is received. It's not in you and me by our own nature. We receive it from on high. So is your view of the Holy Spirit myopic? Is the Holy Spirit only to you a disciplinarian? Is he not also a counselor? Is he not also the one who would prompt you? The one with whom we are to keep in step? See the book of Galatians, I believe chapter five. So when the Holy Spirit moves in your heart and you receive that power from God and the conversation has the potential to move toward the gospel, you take a step. All right, speaking of Indiana Jones, it's that step of faith where you're stepping into what looks like an abyss and you don't know if there's gonna be something there to catch your foot. The worst case scenario in this situation, by the way, is not that bad. And we'll talk more about that later. But today I want you to grasp this truth. Jesus said that he was always going to be with us, even after his ascension. How is he with us? By the power of the Holy Spirit, not just a disciplinarian, also the one who will prompt you to seize the moment for a sacred conversation. Before the conversation begins, you will receive power. Jesse, I don't have the wits about me to try to persuade someone to abandon their worldview and adopt mine. I'm not smart enough to do that. That person's way smarter than me. You will receive power from the Holy Spirit of God. That's Jesus who is with you always, even until the world ends. That promise never expires. Spoken by resurrected God. So it's true. So believe it. So as the sacred conversation opens, as the opportunity begins, know that.